Hey, Not Past It listeners. As you might know, we're on a break from making new episodes. But we had this one last Pride episode in the works that we wanted to share with you. We couldn't dip without doing one more NPI classic. That's right. It's time for the historical domino effect. That's where we travel through time and see how one moment in history topples over a string of events, bringing us to unexpected places. And today, we're going to take a look at something that's been popping up more and more in the news lately, book bannings. We continue this morning with the uptick in book bans playing out in public schools. LGBTQIA books on the history of race, racism, slavery in the United States, or representing black voices. 32 states now have book banning laws and classic titles are being removed from school libraries across the country. Knowledge is power. And since the invention of written language, we've stockpiled that knowledge in our libraries, explored ideas from timeless literature in our schools, But when books challenge the status quo, they're at risk of being taken off the shelf. Today, we're putting them back. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. Book bannings ain't new, kids. There's a long history of people trying to destroy or limit access to the published word. So, in today's episode, we're starting our domino journey almost a century ago to see how books have been banned and challenged here in the U.S. and how determined authors inspire the next generation of writers. The dominoes are all lined up, and we'll knock over the first one after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Okay. I am joined by a very special guest today. She's a drag performer who serves on the board for Drag Story Hour, and she's a children's book author herself with titles like The Hips on the Drag Queen Go Swish, Swish, Swish. Welcome, Lil Miss Hot Mess. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you for coming on the show. So today we have a literary domino journey prepared for you. But just before we start, for those who are listening and are not familiar with Drag Story Hour, can you tell us a little bit more about the organization? Yes. Drag Story Hour is basically just what it sounds like. It is drag queens, drag kings, drag performers of all fabulous identities, reading books to kids in libraries and bookstores and schools and basically anywhere that will have us. And our mission is really to celebrate reading through the glamorous art of drag. It's so much fun to just get to spread this joy of drag to kids. Wow. And, you know, I mentioned that you yourself are an authoress. I'm curious, when you're off stage, what inspires you to write? You know, in some ways, I guess I've always been a writer. And my books really 
they kind of take a, a classic element of drag, which is to borrow elements of pop culture and give them a little bit of a drag twist. They kind of get kids to to move their bodies and to sing along and and don't just tell kids what drag queens are, but really get them to kind of feel it in their bones themselves. Oh, that's great. So today we're going to be looking at a history of book bannings, which unfortunately is something we're seeing more and more in a lot of school districts across the country. And I'm curious, I know, I'm sure your book has a lot of fans, but have you come across challenges to your book or people attempting to ban it? Yes. Unfortunately, I have received a number of challenges and and honestly, there's probably more around the country Yeah. The way this works is some party or person or group starts off with a challenge to a book. They're petitioning a school or a library to remove a book from their shelves or to restrict access to it. And then if the challenge is successful, that's when a book can be officially banned and removed. Yes. We're seeing a big uptick in book bans over the last few years. It seems like these bans are targeting largely books by authors of color or books that touch on LGBTQ themes. And this restriction of expression isn't just stopping with books. I'm thinking specifically of the push for, you know, so-called drag bans in some states. And there's been pushback against Drag Story Hour. What has your experience been of people saying that drag should not be a part of children's lives? Honestly, I think it's just so sad. It's, you know, drag is all about building community, about spreading a sense of joy, about literally kind of remaking the world around us by having the audacity to dress up and be our brightest and boldest and most fabulous selves. And it's just so disappointing that Even though that might not be everyone's cup of tea, that some people really want to rain on everyone else's parade. So it's an attack not only on LGBTQ plus people, but also an attack on free speech and and creative expression. And in some ways, also just kind of an attack on imagination. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about how these efforts to silence culture and expression are interconnected in our History Domino journey today. And we are going to start all the way back in the Harlem Renaissance with domino number one. So when I say Harlem Renaissance, what does that bring to mind for you? I think of kind of this flourishing moment of Black culture, you know, emanating from Harlem and I think extending throughout the country and throughout the world. And I think it's a not so, not so close secret anymore that so much of the Harlem Renaissance and the folks who were really leading that were also queer in some way. And I think of it as this kind of magical moment in our cultural history. Yeah, exactly. This is like Harlem in the 1920s and 30s, absolutely exploding with culture. You could pop into a jazz club and hear Louis Armstrong trumpeting. You could mosey down to a cafe, maybe catch Langston Hughes reading a poem. You could even slide into the Rockland Palace on 155th Street to see an extravagant queer drag ball um, because underground ballroom culture was thriving in Harlem as early as the 20s. Oh. Yeah, it was like this totally vibrant scene. 
Now, amidst all of this culture, art, and music, one crucial literary figure emerged. She would end up becoming one of the most famous African-American novelists in history. In the 1920s, she was a student at Barnard College, right on the edge of Harlem and the Upper West Side. And I think I heard she's a huge inspiration of yours as well. (laughs) Do you know who I'm talking about? Zora Neale Hurston. Yes, yeah, sure is. Is is she an inspiration of yours? She actually is. I think my senior year in high school, we read Their Eyes Are Watching God, and it's been one of my favorite novels ever since. For those who don't know, Hurston was a prolific writer and anthropologist who dedicated much of her work to revealing the truth of the Black experience. Their Eyes Were Watching God being probably her most famous novel. It's centered around one woman, Janie Crawford, living in a segregated Florida in the 1900s. And throughout the book, we follow her going from troubling marriage to troubling marriage, navigating a sexual awakening, and finding her own inner power. So during the Harlem Renaissance period, the book actually had a lot of critics, particularly Black men associated with the Harlem Renaissance who panned the book, claiming that it was an oversimplification of Black people that that pandered to white audiences. Others critiqued its use of heavy Southern vernacular in the dialogue, which is interesting because for me, the language is like the thing that I remember the most from that novel. It's so distinctive. Mm -hmm. And we actually have a clip from an audiobook just to get a little taste of that. This house is full of thoughts, especially that bedroom. I know all them sitters and talkers going to worry their guts into fiddle strings till they find out what we've been talking about. They're going to make my ration because my love didn't work like they love if they ever had any. I don't know. It's it, To me, like hearing those words and, and hearing them read, it, it's so hard to imagine anything but that richness of local culture and, and ways of speaking. Yeah, yeah. Now, throughout the 20s and 30s, Hurston worked as an anthropologist studying folklore. She would often travel down to Florida to do field work. She immersed herself in the dialect spoken in the area. And later, she even went to the Caribbean to better understand the languages and cultures of the African diaspora. And unfortunately, the book was not celebrated in her lifetime. It sold fewer than 5,000 copies by the late 1960s, so her publishers actually stopped printing the novel. She never lived to see real literary success. Hurston spent the majority of her life in financial instability. Health issues eventually caught up to her, and in 1960, she died of heart disease. She was buried in a segregated cemetery without a grave marker. It wasn't until after her death that their eyes were watching God received recognition. In 1975, Ms. Magazine would print an extensive write-up of Hurston's work and legacy to their national audience. And afterwards, publishers began reprinting the novel. And from that point, it became a literary classic. Yes. However, with this renewed interest, the book would again face criticism. In the mid-90s, parents at Stonewall Jackson High School in Brentsville, Virginia, challenged the book, complaining that it was too sexually explicit. But they were unsuccessful, and the book stayed. Hurston's legacy is long, it's important, but her struggles and the reality of her life and death are sometimes overlooked. 
Her grave would go unmarked for almost 15 years after she died. That is, until a soon-to-be Pulitzer Prize-winning author would go looking for it. And that leads us to domino number two. Picture this. It's 1973, and one woman is making her way through a segregated cemetery in Fort Pierce, Florida. She brushes through weeds in search of Zora Neale Hurston's final resting place. The woman has been trying to track down her favorite author, even calling herself Miss Hurston's niece, to get people to talk to her. Finally, among overgrown bushes, she finds a sunken hole, Zora Neale Hurston's unmarked grave. This woman is an author herself. She'd go on to write a timeless classic set in rural Georgia in the early 1900s about a young Black girl's journey through traumatic life experiences and an exploration of her queer identity. The novel would win a Pulitzer and go on to be adapted into a movie with the classic line, and we'll get a little dramatic scoring going on here. (laughs) Everything you done to me, already done to you. Do you think you can guess which author and what book I'm talking about? Would that be The Color Purple by Alice Walker? It sure is. Yes, you got that right. I didn't know this was going to be such a quiz show, but I'm loving it. <laughs> oh, yeah, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Walker loved how Hurston embraced the language of the South, and it really impressed on Walker the importance of centering women's stories. Um, and after finding Hurston's grave, Walker ordered a headstone and had it inscribed with the title Genius of the South. It's actually Walker who wrote about Hurston for Ms. Magazine in 1975. And seven years later, in 1982, she'd publish The Color Purple. Um, is this a novel that you have read? I actually have not read The Color Purple, I have to admit. That's okay. I actually haven't either. <laughs> I'm more of a film girl. <laughs> but, yes. um, so, you know, I'll tell you and our audience about the plot a little bit more. The Color Purple tells the story of a young girl named Celie as she's growing up in rural Georgia in the Jim Crow 1900s. At one point, her sister is pressured into marriage and leaves the family. So Celie starts writing these letters to God. They're her way of processing the traumas of her life and to find some semblance of strength in the middle of all the turmoil thrown at her. In the end, she finds love with another woman named Suge. The Color Purple was published right on the heels of the civil rights movement and the women's liberation movement, so a very different time from when Hurston published Their Eyes Were Watching God. And as for Alice Walker, she has been able to see her work celebrated. In addition to winning the Pulitzer, The Color Purple also won the National Book Award in 1983. Though, and you might be sensing a theme here, that book also received some pushback. We're talking about the 1980s, so you've got Ronald Reagan entering the presidency, and you have the moral majority, which is basically this right-wing Christian political machine, making a strong stamp on American culture. Conservative groups were ratcheting up efforts to counter what they saw as a threat to traditional values in America. And for a taste of that, here is a clip from Moral Majority founder Jerry Falwell Sr. We parents and leaders have a reason to be concerned. 
93% of all Americans believe the husband-wife relationship is the ideal. And that means we don't have to promote homosexuality as an acceptable alternate lifestyle. It is not that. It's moral perversion. And our young people need to know that, need to hear that. Ooh. Yeah, we can leave it at that. <laughs> now, one way that conservative leaders were, <laughs> quote, defending traditional values was by challenging and banning books. In 1980, there were around 300 book banning attempts. But the next year, in 1981, they tripled to over 900. You know, when we think about this moment in the 80s, what's interesting is they were targeting both contemporary novels and, you know, what would have been considered classics even then. For example, Of Mice and Men, first published in 1937. That was challenged in 1982 due to profanity and using God's name in vain. Hmm. Scandalous. Um, Yeah. Richard Wright's Native Son, published in 1940, was also challenged in 1981 for violence, sex, and profanity. And The Color Purple was first challenged in 1984 in an Oakland honors class due to sexual and social explicitness and its troubling ideas about race relations, man's relationship to God, African history, and human sexuality. There was a back and forth for nine months before the board would end up rejecting the challenge. The novel would face many more challenges all around the country throughout the next few decades. But listen, if you've got haters, you're probably doing something right. Amen. Um, Because The Color Purple obviously had its fans, and it even attracted some very important fans. After The Color Purple was published, one morning talk show host in Chicago would read a copy of the book in one sitting. And she loved it so much that when she learned it was being adapted into a film, she prayed that she would be cast. That talk show host would have her prayers answered. And that takes us to... Domino number three. Chicago morning talk show host. Do you think you know who I'm talking about here? Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) Yeah, you got it. I love this game. I keep wanting to shout it out, but I, I don't want to ruin the surprise. Well, in the 1970s, she had been a local news anchor in Nashville and in Baltimore. And by 1984, she was hosting a local Chicago morning show called AM Chicago. Good morning, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and welcome to AM Chicago. Just want to let you know that we had... That's when she got her copy, and after reading it, she said a little prayer, and I'm going to do my best Oprah impression. Yes. Okay, is everyone ready? Everyone's got their seatbelts on? (laughs) God, please find me a way to get into that movie! You get a movie, and you get a movie, and you get a movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, around the same time that Oprah was dreaming about acting in an adaptation of The Color Purple, a couple of Hollywood producers were already setting the wheels in motion. And you know, it's crazy to think, but the movie almost never got off the ground. Oh, wow. Yeah, Alice Walker at first, like, wasn't so sure about selling the rights. She didn't trust how Hollywood had portrayed minority characters in the past. It's not like she was wrong. Yeah. But after a lot of begging, Walker finally agreed, and she became a project consultant on the film. And so after 
Producers got Walker on board. They brought in some other heavy hitters, Steven Spielberg to direct, music producer Quincy Jones to produce. And during the casting, Jones was visiting Chicago and happened to be flipping through channels one day. He saw Oprah's morning talk show, went to Spielberg, and convinced him to take a risk on casting her as Seeley's headstrong friend, Sophia. And we actually have a clip of Oprah from the movie. Oh, my life, I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my uncles. I had to fight my brothers. Girl, child ain't safe in a family man's. But I never thought I had to fight in my own house. I love Hoppo. God knows I do. But I kill him dead before I let him be. Wow, that's a performance, I gotta say. Yes, Now, Spielberg also made another really big choice. When adapting the book to a script, he took the expansive and intimate love story between Celie and Suge, two of the central women in the story, and minimized it to just one on-screen kiss. Mm. Yeah. Later in interviews, he has expressed remorse over the decision, but said he felt it was the only way he could get the film made. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that The Color Purple is a queer story because of that change that was made in the movie. I'm curious, what is your reaction to that choice? It's so disappointing, but also in so many ways, not that surprising. I think in some ways, the history of book banning also runs in parallel to the history of censorship in movies and TV and other forms of media. We don't even need book bans or direct censorship to cut out these stories, our own quote-unquote allies sometimes do that censorship for us because there's this chilling effect, you know, where we're told that there's no market for it. So sometimes that that just starts, you know, right from the very beginning where we're not able to really be our authentic selves on page or on screen. Yeah. The movie did go on to be this huge critical success. Mm -hmm. It racked up 11 Academy Award nominations, including one for Oprah in the Best Supporting Actress category. And it also just had a larger ripple effect in culture. After the success of The Color Purple, Oprah's local talk show went national as the Oprah Winfrey Show, making her an even bigger household name. And if you know Ms. Winfrey, she wasn't just sitting back and chilling with this newfound success. (laughs) She would use her platform to connect with her growing audience. How? Well, little Miss Hot Mess, we'll find out after the break. So let's dog ear this page and let Ms. Winfrey take us out. We'll be right back. Thank Thank you so much. Okay, welcome back, my bookworms. I'm here with performer, Drag Story Hour board member, and children's book writer, Lil Miss Hot Mess. Hello, hello. Hello. And maybe we can jump back in with a little plot synopsis of the literary journey we've gone on so far. 
We started our journey back in the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 30s, talking about Zora Neale Hurston and her canonical work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, uh, which was then kind of rediscovered, resuscitated by Alice Walker, who encountered her own challenges with her novel, The Color Purple, including its adaptation uh, by Spielberg into a film and the ways in which that didn't quite keep all the, the rich queerness in its narrative. And of course, we landed on Oprah because all things come back to Oprah in the end. All roads lead back to Oprah. Yes. Beautiful recap. Thank you. Like you said, we left off with Oprah and the Oprah Winfrey show exploding on televisions across America after her award-winning performance in The Color Purple. And, you know, this wasn't just any old daytime talk show. This was like a game changer of a show. Yes, ma'am. Oprah tackled social and political issues. She engaged her audience directly and explored topics that her largely female audience really cared about. Things like relationships, health, family life, workplace dynamics. Oprah, that was definitely a show that I grew up with, you know, on in the house. Mm -hmm. I was born in the early 90s. So for me, it was like, Oprah was like the mom show. Like every mom loved Oprah. (laughs) Was that the same for you? I I didn't really watch her, but yeah, she was on. She was on in the background. She She was a force for sure. Yeah, I feel like... If you grew up in the States, like, you just kind of had Oprah via osmosis, like, in the air. Exactly. Now, what was really unique about her was that she had this uncanny ability to start conversations that would bridge the gap between genders, races, socioeconomic backgrounds, which made the show fertile ground for bringing important conversations and ideas to the wider public. And in 1996, she rolled out a new segment on her show that has since evolved into a massive community, all centered around the power of sharing a good book. Do you have any ideas as to what I'm talking about? Could it be Oprah's Book Club? It sure is, yes. (laughs) Oprah's Famous Book Club which all began when one of Oprah's producers suggested that audiences might be interested in the books she was reading. Oprah was super into it. She'd personally pick a book she'd loved, announce it to her viewers, bring in authors to chat, and launch discussions about the book and its themes. And what we want to do is start a book club here on The Oprah Show. And I want to get the whole country reading again. Those of you who haven't been reading, I think books are important. And this March, Oprah's book club reached a big milestone, its 100th book pick. Wow. There is one author who has dominated the list. Four of her novels have gotten Oprah's seal of approval. She was the first Black woman to win a Nobel Prize. And when awarding her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, former President Barack Obama said of her writing... It brings us that kind of moral and emotional intensity that few writers ever attempt. Do you know what author I am talking about? I got a little nervous with this one, but I think it's Toni Morrison. Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, you are crushing these. (laughs) Yes, I am talking about novelist, essayist, and playwright Toni Morrison. 
She is the author of classics like The Bluest Eye, Sula, Song of Solomon, Beloved. The list goes on. Mm -hmm. Um, Her books challenge norms, capture the internal world of Black women in America, and she was one of the preeminent American intellectuals of the last 50 years. Oh, absolutely. Her work is just, it's raw and it's honest. It brings these uncomfortable realities to the page, an invaluable perspective, but also one that has made her books a target for bans. Morrison's work regularly appears on the American Library Association annual list of the top 10 most challenged books. Mm-hmm. Oprah had Toni Morrison on her show multiple times over the years, including in 2011. And we have a clip from that particular appearance where Morrison explains what writing means to her. I have a place that is mine. That's my work when I write. Mm-hmm. That's mine. Mm -hmm. It is free. Nobody tells me what to do. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't listen if they did. Mm -hmm. It's all mine. It's my world. I have invented it. These are my people. This is my language. There's something so radical about, like, cultivating this space Mm -hmm. where the only thing that matters is what she thinks, you know? I, I just love that. And, you know, her words have such gravitas, both spoken and on the page. But there is one quote of Morrison's in particular that has had a real tangible effect on our current generation of writers. And actually, I'd love it if you could read it for me. We'll pull it up for you. Mm -hmm. If there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Toni Morrison. Well... This quote from Morrison inspired another author, so much so that they had it tattooed on their arm. And that is going to take us to our final domino, domino number five. Who is this author, you might be wondering? I am wondering. (laughs) (laughs) Can read your mind? Uh, Well, let me play you a clip of them talking about Toni Morrison. When I think about Toni Morrison, she's... The reason that I write, I have her tattooed on my arm. It's uh, her quote, if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. It literally just empowers me to continue to do that for so many others who have never had their stories told. That is the voice of George M. Johnson. They're the author of the 2020 young adult nonfiction memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue. It's a collection of essays that chronicle Johnson's experience growing up as a queer Black person. It touches on trauma, sexual violence, masculinity, consent, and the book also tackles gender norms. Through the title and its stories, Johnson wanted to challenge the idea that blue is for boys and pink is for girls. Oh, yes. In 2021, a Florida school board filed a criminal complaint because the book contained sexually graphic material, including descriptions of masturbation and queer sex. And by the fall of 2022, at least 29 school districts had banned the book for its LGBTQ content and for being, by some accounts, sexually explicit. Now, Johnson's book is far from the only one being challenged. We're in a moment where we're seeing an uptick in pushback against books by queer authors. And here's Johnson again on on that point. 
I talk about what it feels like when you don't have any representation of yourself in the world and how isolating that can feel. We know that LGBTQ youth experience suicidal ideations at a much higher rate, die by suicide at a much higher rate than their heterosexual counterparts. Books like these prevent those things from happening. So it's extremely important that they have resources like mine and many of the other books that they are trying to ban because it honestly can save their lives. Oh, I think that last line of of saving lives is just so important that, yeah, so much of art, of literature, of media is so critical in in helping people to to understand their own identities and to to find joy and celebration in them. That's one of the things that's so frustrating about these book challenges and these book bans is that they want to limit our our understanding of the diversity and the complexity and the sometimes the messiness, the hot messiness of the world around us. And and I think we all we all deserve to to navigate that for ourselves. So George M. Johnson's work is just so powerful in that way as well. Yeah. Now, through this whole journey, what stands out to me is the fact that George M. Johnson's work doesn't exist without Toni Morrison's or Alice Walker's or Zora Neale Hurston's writing. Um, And what's shared between all of these writers is the fact that even in the face of pushback and attempts to soften or silence their work, they pushed for their words to exist in the world. They told their stories and people found ways to read them and share them. And I'm wondering, with all the book challenges and bans today, how do you think about what's at stake? I think one thing that all of these different authors is making me think about is just sort of the power of storytelling and fiction to sometimes get at truths that are even more true than reality. And that, to me, is something that that so many of these authors also share with drag performers, which is that sometimes you do need just that little bit of embellishment or you need that little bit of a critical eye or just going a teeny bit over the top as a way to really unpack that kernel of truth that so often gets hidden in our society. And so as much as Drag Story Hour is all about storytelling to children, I think that drag, you know, as a traditional art form, as a medium, has also always been about storytelling in our communities. Oh, that's, I love that point. That's, that's great. Now, in the spirit of passing books forward, any books you're reading or have read lately that you'd like to recommend? Ooh, yes, the quiz continues. I am currently reading a book called Who Does That Bitch Think She Is, which is a biography. Title alone. (laughs) It's a biography of a legendary drag performer named Doris Fish, who was born in Australia and ended up in San Francisco. And yeah, was this fabulous performer in the 70s and 80s who passed away from HIV AIDS, but who really... Yeah, really did drag at a time when, you know, it wasn't on TV and really kind of made this wonderful name for herself and and I think helped helped expand the art form into what it is. Well, Lil Miss Hot Mess, 
we've just turned the final page of our literary domino journey. Thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to picking up your next book. Maybe not a graphed copy. Just gonna slide that in. Of course. (laughs) No pressure, but you know, if you feel if you feel moved. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's it's been a blast. Thank you. It's truly been a pleasure for me as well. (laughs) Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ramoy Phillip. The rest of our team are associate producers Laura Newcomb and Nick Del Rose. Our production assistant is Jasper Jarecki. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Aaron Edwards. Andrea B. Scott is our executive editor. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by THE Bobby Lord. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. You can listen to the entire audiobook of Their Eyes Were Watching God, performed by Ruby D over on Spotify. Special thanks to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, and Liz Stiles. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. I'll see ya when I see ya. If you please, in your best Oprah voice, can you let the listeners know we'll be right back? We'll be right back. That wasn't really an Oprah impression, but you know. It was like, you know, (laughs) subtle Oprah.